So, Jeremy, we're leading off with you today. What do you have? Uh, I think what I just the stuff I've been seeing pop up about the indictment and the you know shifting focus. Whose indictment? The guy. <laughs> the big guy. The big guy. I have one of Chicago's mayor candidates is hanging out with domestic terrorists. Awesome. I have by great. Uh, active listener demand. Uh, we're going to be uh, visiting the issue of uh, Tucker Carlson and the texts that he wrote about Donald Trump. Oh, I might have a response to that. And then we're going to finish off with uh, woke madness, Notre Dame gender studies. Boy, won't love you, it. you'll love that. Yep. All Sign right. me up. Let's go. Okay, people, let's begin. Get up, everybody! We have liftoff. Get up. Get up, Jeremy! I'm up. Are you ready to be baited? I'm ready. With the truth, Jeremy? Half-truth? Nothing but the truth, Jeremy. Are you ready? I'm you ready. have to tell me you're ready or I can't get this going said i'm ready <laughs> good did you miss it <laughs> i must have is there something well, wrong with my audio i uh, now i'm ready to <laughs> you're <laughs> co-hosting the truth bait podcast ladies and gentlemen give give my co-host a hand jeremy siegel no 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 you're co-hosting the truth bait podcast andrew marcus Yes, everybody, give the guy a round of applause. It's Friday, March 24th. This is episode 10. Yes, I'm Andrew. This is also Jeremy with me. We are filmmakers and podcasters here deconstructing America's propaganda civil war and reconstructing America's cultural narrative in our image. Jeremy, how are you? I am so excited to be back with you. I'm, I missed you, even though I never see you. Uh, I just felt you were gone in California. And, um, you know, so we had a different kind of show on, on Tuesday for everybody. And I think we're, we're glad uh, to be back and, and getting back into the normal uh, Truth Bait podcast today. Jeremy, leave it to Los Angeles to make me feel glad to be back in Chicago. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How do you how do you choose between those two? It's it's worse in Los Angeles. No, it but is. the weather. The weather is so much better. That's what makes it worse in Los Angeles. Is that right? Yeah. There's the the, the as as pervasive as the homelessness is here in Chicago, it's it's much worse in Los Angeles. Which actually is probably a good thing that it's right in everybody's faces because then they have to begin to deal with it. It's too bad, but uh, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad we're back. I'm glad to be back. Uh, yes. Um, back with you. And it has been a big week 
of narratives. What did people think do you th- of our of our interview uh, episode? Oh, I I had uh, I got some good feedback. Some some friends texted me that that they liked it. Um, you know, Paul is has this you know interesting viewpoint that we don't usually get exposed to. I did get a couple comments that he was hard to follow or hard to understand. That happens. Sometimes he doesn't get people's names right, things like that. Um, Community organizer Paul McKinley. Like like Bernie Sanders, the Mac, or or whatever he called him. Um, But Paul's a great guy. And, and, uh, yeah, it'd be good to get some feedback from people, you know, if they learned anything from that interview. But we were... I think we were missing out on on the big excitement of the week. Yeah, what was that? Well, it Obvious. was Yeah, I mean, I I, I I was on pins and needles waiting for this one. <laughs> I th- I bet so many people were freaking out because I think that's what the news was designed to do. And I think that's what Mr. Trump want, wanted people to do. But when he texted out, it was sort of like right after our, our show on Friday that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday. That's correct. He, that was that was on, the big noise was that he was yeah, and right, he put it out, right? He, right. He well, there were there was there were rumors sort of kind of creeping out. There was some stuff I saw on Gateway Pundit, you know, that that this DA was going to uh, indict him and he was going to be arrested. Then, then some of the media was talking about uh, what it will look like if he gets arrested and negotiating between the secret service and the authorities in New York, how it would look and you know, how he would be brought in. Uh, would he be cuffed? Would he not be cuffed? And then everybody like on the socials was freaking out too. They right, were, they were so obsessed like, with it. Maybe Saturday or sometime over the weekend, he put out on his true social social media site that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday and called for protests. And I found it interesting that basically right away there was a big sort of alarm bells ringing like, hey, don't. Like, take it easy. Don't everybody go fall for this trap just like J6, right? It's kind of a... Right. It's kind of a a dilemma though, right? Like, people want to go out and support him. They they think there's an injustice going on. And I think rightfully so. Jeremy, doesn't that hint at a distrust also that, that some people out there have in Trump? He, on January 6th, he called for protests People showed up to those protests. Those protests were hijacked, and innocent Trump supporters were caught up in that hijacking and are rotting in jail today. And their perception has been, or some of their perceptions have been, that he hasn't done very much of anything to defend them or to get them out of jail. And is this another setup? In other words, and I'm not saying they're blaming Trump, I'm saying that they don't trust that that he can call for a protest like this and that people can go there and not end up caught in a trap. I think there are people who think he has, uh, that he still 
could be part of the scheme against the people, though I think that's a small small group of of people that think that. And I think that there's a lot of people that think he's, maybe he just kind of doesn't get certain things like this. Like, like it's just like, it's, it's, it's malpractice or something. Like he's telling everybody to go out and protest and he should know better based on what happened last time. Um, definitely. I thought during the, during the J six thing, that was something to not go anywhere near. It looked like a trap. This one looked like a trap again also, but I found it interesting. Um, when I saw the, uh, when I saw some of the news coverage early, on Monday, um, I have some local CBS coverage here. So the legal trouble continues to mount. Meanwhile, um, House Republicans and certainly, uh, you know, Donald Trump especially, uh, making this uh, a partisan issue, saying this is way too politicized. Uh, so a lot of developments on that front. But then you have, you know, because of that, in, in large part, you have the potential for protests. And the security response, how has that changed? How has it evolved uh, since yesterday? I think what's interesting here is Trump's original suggestion that he would be arrested on Tuesday almost served as a trial balloon for what sort of public opposition there might be. Because at the time, Trump, of course, published a message on his Truth social media platform calling on people to protest and, in his words, take back the country. What we saw, though, were very small protests. A few dozen people outside his Mar-a-Lago home, only about a dozen people here in New York. Uh, really, no large-scale protests have materialized. Still, there is so much concern about the potential for protests, potentially even violence, that you're seeing a massive increase in the amount of police officers on the street, the number of people in uniform. And, Anthony, there is widespread coordination both in New York and Washington amongst law enforcement. And then here's another Wait, local... Hold on a second. I need you to play that again, okay? And every time I I need you to stop because I have a I have something I need to highlight. I didn't want to interrupt your flow there on that on when you were going through that clip, but do me a favor. Play that clip again and when you hear my bell, stop. Okay? So the legal trouble continues to mount. Meanwhile, um, House Republicans and certainly, uh, you know, Donald Trump especially, uh, making this uh, a partisan issue, saying this is way too politicized. What? <laughs> oh, okay. Who's making it politicized? They're yeah, saying that they're saying that I, I'm so confused by what he is saying there. Is he saying that, that that Republican that Donald Trump is politicizing it or that Donald Trump is saying it's politicized? What is he saying there? So the legal trouble continues to mount. Meanwhile, um, House Republicans and certainly, uh, you know, Donald Trump especially, uh, making this uh, a partisan issue, saying this is way too politicized. Uh, so a lot of <laughs> okay, They're making it a partisan issue, saying it's way too politicized. Right, right. <laughs> that makes no sense. He completely garbled that line. <laughs> okay, continue playing that clip. Yeah, that was a good developments one. on that front. But then you have, you know, because of that, in large part, you have the potential for protests and the security response. How has that changed? How has it evolved uh, since yesterday? I think what's interesting here is Trump's original suggestion that he would be arrested on Tuesday almost served as a trial balloon for what sort of public opposition. 
Okay, so Trump's <laughs> right. <laughs> a tr- it was a, a trial CCP balloon. Trump balloon. It's like a Chinese trial balloon. Uh, so uh, he, so Trump floated the trial balloon. Trump right. floated it for brag. So, I don't understand this. Who who floated the trial balloon and why? It's a it's a weird one to figure. Try to figure out. So Trump was trying to see how big his support was, I guess, by calling for protests. Now, here's why I would say this if I was the media, right? Because Trump is making claims that everybody can see what's going on, and I think everybody can see it. And I think that the overwhelming majority does think it is a witch hunt, as he claims, But this is like the same thing Michelle Obama said in her podcast the other day that the uh, Trump inauguration didn't have that many people there. And this is saying, oh, Trump called for protests and not too many people showed up. So I think that's trying to position that there that that Trump did this. Nobody came. And so he's not as cool as he thinks he is. Well, And if Trump is, let's entertain the we'll put the. We'll put the tinfoil hat on for a second. Okay. That's tight by my ears. Let's let's for a second entertain the idea that Trump is in on it. He's part of the deep state or a deep state. And he called for protests to gauge just how beaten everybody is. Is there any life left in anybody and who and where? Maybe. I'm not saying that's so. the case. I'm just saying that's what you could perceive if you're in that camp. But there was the, did you want to hear more from that clip again? Or were those your, uh, no, I like the, the brilliance of that coverage just scrambled my brain for a moment. I needed your help. Understand, <laughs> understanding yeah. what was being said. I, uh, please go on. And there was some more local coverage here. Um, in New York. Today, the NYPD is on heightened security after former President Donald Trump this past weekend encouraged his supporters to protest in New York City this week. It comes as Trump claims he could be indicted tomorrow for campaign finance violations tied to payments allegedly made to adult film star Stormy Daniels. This is new video into our newsroom this afternoon of NYPD officers beefing up security. They are setting up barricades near the downtown courthouse. CBS News John Diaz has the very latest from out Manhattan criminal court. Yeah, good afternoon. And CBS News has learned that Trump's legal team is looking to discredit the key witness, the star witness here in this case, Michael Cohen today, calling on an attorney to appear in front of a grand jury in what could be a last ditch effort. It's the closest the country has ever been to indicting a former president and Donald Trump saying over the weekend he believes his indictment could come as early as tomorrow. We've never in the history of the United States of America been in this situation. The pending indictment stemmed from the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation. In- so they have, they have uh, visuals of them unloading all the barricades. I actually have something about those barricades, Jeremy. Is that right? Yeah, it's from you. Oh yeah, you texted on Monday about those barricades. You said, "quote I think they're getting those barricades out from when they don't indict Trump." What did you mean by that? So 
I saw them unloading these barricades on Monday and I'm like, this is all too, I don't know. It was like all too staged, right? Trump tweets out pro it's an, it's like a, now it's like an automatic response. If Trump says protests, ah, based on January 6th insurrection, we better call out the national guard. If Trump says protest, right? Cause that means it's going to be violence and chaos, but you right away, you see people saying, don't fall for this trap. They're going to try to set everybody up again. They're going to have infiltrators if you go to protest and they're going to, you know, get people arrested. And I think that's a, a good way to look at it, at least a smart way to look at it. Um, but I'm thinking, who do they, they're really going to the lengths of putting out all these barricades and they don't usually need to do that actually for conservative demonstrations. I mean, sometimes they do it just to keep people contained in certain areas or keep counter protesters from being able to, you know, from fights from starting and stuff like that. But to me, it reminded me of setting up for a left-wing protest. Every single left-wing anarchist, Antifa, BLM, any demonstration that we've ever been to, that's when they've got all these barricades out. That's where they need to protect the building. And I'm like, you started to see a couple little reports leak out, like, and some of the media coverage is saying Trump claims he's going to be indicted and the mainstream media wasn't saying he's going to and if he was going to they would have been saying he's going to and i'm like i bet you they're not gonna indict trump i bet you they're putting out these barricades to hold back what the barricades are basically an invitation to the left to come out right Right. it's like antifa sees right antifa sees barricades and they see something they can go smash and throw right and so I'm like, they're not going to arrest him. This is all a big setup. Whatever they leaked to him, they get the calls for protest. And now they're going to set up uh, for the left, who's going to be enraged when the arrest doesn't actually come. And this wasn't the first time that I had uh, sort of thought this. Because if you remember back a couple weeks ago... Um, that's the sound of us going back a couple of weeks ago. That's the Wayback Machine engine. Uh, I think I said something similar. So that's why I think it, the real intention here is distracting. I don't think anybody has any real intention of indicting Trump. I don't think he's ever going to get indicted. I think they just keep putting this stuff out there to keep everybody hopped up and, and scared or... or By the way, that was back when we were broadcasting from a phone booth. <laughs> I stand by my prediction. They are not indicting Trump. They're not arresting Trump, at least not now, but I still don't think ever. Um, Doesn't it feel then- like he was a part of all of this drama that unfolded, that this was... Uh, some kind of a dance that they're doing together. I feel it, a bit played by all of this. It could be that. I think that's 
definitely possible. Um, well, what I'm are not, the implications of that if that's true? Well, that would be a shame. I mean, I think that would really indicate that he is, you know, kind of just part of this big play that we're all watching unfold. And, you know, there's there's no hope of having a candidate that's an outsider. I think his appeal is still that he does still seem to be an outsider who's been duped on some things and made some poor choices on some things. But it it does cause you to question like why is he calling for people to come out and protest again because basically everyone else could kind of everyone else could kind of see it like that's stupid don't do that right Um, so does he just have no campaign organization around him unless he's trying to draw out um antifa and them because the other thing Uh that happened the other thing that happened is I saw this picture from outside the courthouse in Madison of the Alvin Bragg's office rejects House GOP questions about Donald Trump criminal investigation. And in then Mad- there's a wait, picture. In in- Sorry, not Madison, Manhattan. Okay. Um, that's a Freudian slip, I guess you call that, when you say one thing and you mean a mother. <laughs> Nice. I mean, I've never heard that one before. <laughs> I mean, another. Um, when you say one thing and you mean another. Um, so it's a picture from Manhattan outside the courthouse where they want to, or where they're supposedly going to book Trump when he's indicted. And there's been some pictures kind of coming out of there all week where you do see a bunch of black masked, black hoodie. Antifa folks. And who's in this picture holding an arrest Trump sign? Who? Our old friend Lisa. Uh, Lisa Fithian. The uh, the anarchist organizer. The anarchist organizer. And what I noticed. Wait, let's play a chime for her. Oh, shoot, I missed. I hit the wrong button. That was a Freudian uh, slip of my finger. There you go. Lisa Fithian, what I noticed years ago uh, over the course of several different interviews and encounters with her and several different interviews and encounters with Bill Ayers is sort of whatever T-shirt they were wearing was that was the line of effort that we were engaged in or that they were engaged in. Explain that. What does that mean? So whatever narrative and whatever big thing that's consuming everybody's attention, Bill Ayers would have an Occupy Wall Street shirt on. Lisa Fithian would have an Occupy shirt on. And it's like they get them at the same t-shirt store where it's just a black t-shirt, the same matching white font. And it was like whatever the messaging was that read on their shirt was the issue that we were dealing with. So I know it, where they get them. Uh, you know, you made the analogy of the uh, the airplane over our heads dropping these narrative bombs on us. And we never know where the airplane is coming from. We never know where the bombs are coming from. This is where they get their shirts in the gift shop of the airport, wherever that plane right. is coming from. Exactly. Exactly. So you would see during the Occupy 
movement, they would have shirts on that say Occupy or Occupy Wall Street or 99%. And then it transitioned during in Black Lives Matter, they were wearing either Black Lives Matter shirt or End Racism, but it was always these black shirts with the white font. It's like, and these are like the street generals, right? Bill Ayers, Lisa Fithian, they're the ones. Bill Ayers is in the in the universities, but Lisa's really the one on the street who's brought in. She's hired by labor unions. She's hired by different left-wing organizations, SEIU, AFL-CIO, to do training, civil disobedience training, to train people how to get arrested at these protests, how to link arms and handcuff themselves to doors, how to resist arrest and then claim that they weren't resisting arrest, um, how to shut down a bridge over a river so that traffic can't go through. And so here she is in New York City outside the courthouse with the arrest Trump sign, same black font, same black sign with the white font, and her T-shirt says Trump is guilty. And here's here's a little clip of her from an interview I, I had with her back at the uh, Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, uh, that was in 2016. I guess really the only other thing I'd say about that is that you know a lot of my life work has been around building horizontal shared power movements because we know that that's an effective way to create a crisis for the in the social domain, and um, we just don't see we don't see any of that. So I don't know. I guess the reason I ask because it is. It seems like it's something happening, but yeah, with all of kind of the, there's a lot of confusion around. And I look at what happened like in Tahrir Square where an actual dictator was toppled. Right. You know, so what, I guess, what sort of things would need to happen for that to happen here? I mean, well, part of it is for white people to be able to have access to an analysis about our history, about racism, and about the Jeremy, so, what does she sorry say? About, yeah, that audio yeah, is really sorry, rough. Yeah, I'm sorry. This was at the protest, and there were helicopters, and this was the only chance I got to talk to her. She looked at me with a really, you know, with this with the side eye, but then I ended up winning her over, and she talked to me for quite a while. But she's saying, I don't know why more, she would look at you that way. You <laughs> you looked awful that day. No offense, you were covered in dirt you looked like her you looked like one of her yeah but i showered that morning <laughs> oh <laughs> you removed the camel the, you washed off the I camouflage smelled, i smelled clean and it gave away my cover because she she got that trump shirt at that gift shop and unfortunately <laughs> that in that airport gift shop they don't sell deodorant or soap or anything it's just right. the shirts and books and and glasses and and uh red beats headphones lots of things so in i red, asked red her what I asked her what sort of thing needs to happen for a Tahrir Square type revolution in this country. And she says it's about giving white people access to the information of how racist they are and how oppressive they are. So try to try to listen to it again and, and, and get the sense of what she's saying. It is for white people to be able to have access to an analysis about our history, about racism. An analysis, yeah. giving white people access to an analysis of our history. That's critical race training. Critical race training. Right. 
about racism. But not the political system we're really in. I mean, their move is now for the Green Party, right? That's not going to solve our problems in this country. Getting Green Party candidates into Congress is not going to solve the problem. And so again, it's like, look at how much energy is going into this. So I don't know that, honestly, I don't know that there's any way to help this group shift the way that they think. It may just happen. She's talking about the people outside the convention. They're protesting in favor of Bernie. They were protesting against Hillary. And she's basically complaining that they don't really know what's going on. They're still trying to fight within the same system that we have by having somebody that they think is okay and, you know, against Hillary. In reality, the answer to her, she says, is I thought that answer was just very interesting. When What do we need to have a Tahrir Square type revolution in this country is that type of race theory training, that critical theory training. And so it really gives you clear insight into the motivation behind that. Oh, wait until we get to our next segment, Jeremy. This is serendipity that these two segments are going to line up because we're going to be digging deep into that sentiment from a different uh, uh, wing of it. So she's outside. She's outside with this arrest Trump sign and she's got her uniform, this t-shirt, Trump is guilty. And I'm thinking that's the the move here is I still think he's not going to get, and first of all, anywhere she goes, and you know this, because we've encountered her all over the place. She was outside uh, the inauguration. She was in DC for Trump's inauguration all weekend when they were burning cars and smashing windows. And anywhere Antifa is, you can be sure that she's lurking somewhere in the shadows, coordinating everything. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, now here she is in New York City. So this this is confirming my idea that this is about left-wing demonstration. Whether or not we actually see it bubble up, because it looks like with the barricades, they sort of built a ground zero type area. They built a Tahrir Square type area. It doesn't mean it's going to blow up that way. But everybody's down there. They're all contained to have a, a mass, make it look like a huge number of people. And if they decide to go ahead and have a black block demonstration there and start burning cars or smashing windows or burning garbage cans up, it's going to look massive. It's gonna, And they're going to have basically news there for the media to salivate over. Right, they're setting the stage, literally. Right, they're literally building the stage for live propaganda art in the street. And people have to to understand, any protest you see, almost any protest, that is exactly what it is. It is a, and, and I've often said, what Lisa Fithian does, and others like her, there are others like her, what they do is they are producers of dramatic moments for media consumption, period. That is the bottom line. That's their job. That's what they do. Right. They work with the media. They work with the with the local authorities. It's staged. It's, it's a complete show. And you are the audience. Exactly. So this then, going back to that last news report, there's a, 
there's a pivot now because there's the getting ready for the protests to occur that Trump called for, and then they pivot. CBS News legal analyst Ricky Kleeman. If you were going to take the unprecedented step to go and indict a former president, wouldn't we have rather seen it been about January 6th? Wouldn't we have rather seen that it was in Georgia about election interference? But we don't have the luxury of the rather. On his social media platform, Truth Social, Mr. Trump has been urging his supporters to protest and, quote, take our nation back. The message has put New York City and federal law enforcement on alert. That was an attempt to get ahead of the story, to try to, uh, you know, control the uh, narrative about that. And also significantly, it was an attempt to raise money. Alan Sanders is a political science professor who says the support Donald Trump is getting from Republicans right now is just them playing politics. Now here, I think, is the support from and that's the Republicans. what Republicans are most concerned about. They would very much like Donald Trump to go away. But they understand that politically, the MAGA wing of the party, which is a substantial wing, really determines primary elections in many states. Yeah, it's not and really due to a safety wing reasons, of the party legal journey, say it's, that if it's we the body. Do see- right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they keep calling it a wing of the party. I would say the Bushes are a, a wing of the party. They're like a wing. They're like a left wing. Right. They're really just a. They're really just like a right wing of the left party i don't know what they are but the did you hear that pivot there i would rather wouldn't we rather have this be about j6 or, or georgia in, or in georgia is that, so is that what you're saying is the, is what they're doing in new york is this really to build up what it, to try and build up georgia well it's hard to say but so She's Jonathan not indicted Turley. in New York. They like all of a sudden the pressure on Georgia gets amped up. So here's Fox News. Same same thing. Some legal analysis now from George Washington University Law School professor Jonathan Turley. Jonathan, a lot to unpack here. Let's start with this. The former president had a message on Truth Social today. I want to get your response. He says, Everybody knows I'm 100% innocent, including Bragg, the district attorney, but he doesn't care. He's just carrying out the plans of the radical left lunatics. Our country is being destroyed as they tell us to be peaceful. Uh, John, well, is the country really being destroyed? It's not. In a- <laughs> I thought the question was ridiculous. <laughs> She's like, is the, is the country really being destroyed? And then he's like, no, it's not. Yeah, it actually is. Not any part they care about. Right. So this is Fox News. And Turley is generally a pretty good law professor. I think he's left-leaning, but he's more like an honest kind of liberal. Whenever you can find those, they're rare. Which means he's a traitor to the progressives. He he does seem to, to generally have good analysis, but he has the pivot also. And after that uh, went out, I was uh, critical of it because you don't have to tell people to be peaceful. It's their obligation as citizens uh, to be peaceful. And this is not the time for inflammatory rhetoric. Now, the president, in my view, is right. This is a political prosecution. I, I think it's very hard to avoid that conclusion based on the lack of law supporting uh, the reported indictment, but also how this indictment came about. But we have to be very careful about the rhetoric. We've seen uh, not long ago how the rhetoric can escalate uh, the tensions in this country on both sides. Um, 
and the president may yet face charges pertaining to what happened three years and or two years and two months ago. Um, you know, this Manhattan case we're talking about right now uh, is likely to contain the least severe charges for the president of the four criminal investigations he's facing right now. That's right. I mean, if you had to choose which of these torpedoes would hit first, this would be the one. I mean, it's a dud. I mean, the the fact is that even Democrats have been critical of this uh, proposed indictment. Some Democrats have refused to support Bragg in this effort publicly. Uh, but many others say this is helping Trump. And it is because Bragg just gave a case positive uh, to prove Trump's long narrative. He's always said that the criminal justice system is being weaponized against him. Well, it is in this case. Now, the other cases present, I think, a more significant threat. I'm not, there I don't take go. the Georgia case as a, as a high threat for Trump unless there's new evidence. But Mar-a-Lago is a threat. I mean, those are conventional charges. In fact, obstruction, which is the focus of the FBI, is a favorite. So... He so they pivot there on Fox. All right, so bring this all around though for the for the audience. Yeah. So why, why is this happening in New York? To me, New York and Fithian being there with her T-shirt on is that I think this is the next Occupy BLM phase. This is the next line of effort, which is just arrest Trump. That's not going to happen. They're not going to arrest Trump. This is, this is to re-engage and reactivate the radical violent left to burning streets again. And so then they're going to go to Georgia, and he's not going to get indicted in Georgia. And then they're going to go to Florida, and he's not going to get indicted for his documents. And by that time, we're going to be getting into who knows if it's May or if it's the summer. It could be around May. It could be being timed for around May Day. But that's when all the cockroach Antifa start to crawl out of their holes for their summertime protest marches. And I think at the point is to create this chaos. And if I was going to make a bigger prediction, it's to allow Trump to win again so they hang can on, have that tar here square. Hang on. Get your hat ready. Yeah. Okay. Go. So that it's to have Trump win again so they really can have their tar here square toppling of this country and then they can have his head being dragged through the streets. Remind people what the tar here square is. That was the some sort of uprising revolution in uh, Egypt. The color revolution. One of the a color, color revolution. Yeah, color revolution. Obama's revolution. One of Obama's revolutions. The CIA. In Egypt. And yeah, it's so they took over the square and they forced, what was his, I forget his name from whoever that president was. Hosni Mubarak. That's right. And then they put the other guy in, uh, but it was revolution. It was real CC, revolution. It, it was a real big visual overthrowing of the government, just like ours was in 20, uh, 2020. So that's what I, that's sort of what I 
found interesting about the coverage this week because whether or not he did something illegal or not, all of that's that's smoke and mirrors and not significant. Everyone has pretty much already agreed he didn't do anything illegal. And uh, even if he did, it didn't rise to a level of felony. So I feel like when, you, when you're discussing those types of things, um, it's taking away from the bigger picture of, of what we're looking at and, and how these narratives are being laid. Uh, and what are we to not turn paying into attention to? Bigger. What are we not paying attention to while we're focused on that? We're not paying any attention to uh, any of the files Biden was found with. And let's remember, he was vice president and had no power to declassify anything. So he had no uh, business having any classified information. Uh, well, nobody's talking about that. And I'll tell you what else nobody else is talking about. Jeremy, did you see... I bet you didn't. This hasn't really hit uh, much of the radar yet. J.P. Morgan uh, posted a, an article to their website. Why you want to explore Chinese and European equities now? After a decade of U.S. stock dominance, prospects look bright in non-U.S. markets. As markets churn and with global bank stocks especially hit hard in the wake of the biggest U.S. bank collapse, since 2008, it's not easy to see, to see clearly ahead. Countervailing forces will impact the prospects for growth and inflation and in turn, the potential for investment returns in 2023. Uh, beware of home country bias. <laughs> I've heard that before. Many investors stick to their home countries in making investment decisions. For example, U.S. equity market accounts for more than half of the global stock market, yet nearly three-fourths of the entire U.S. equity market is owned by Americans. Home country bias may have proven helpful to U.S. investors during the past decade as the U.S. stock market was propelled higher by the growth of mega-cap tech, stock, tech companies. However, such a bias may be problematic if U.S. stocks were to underperform. Looking ahead, we see several reasons why U.S. stocks might lag their global peers this year. So as long as we're talking about arresting Trump and we have these visuals about arresting Trump, we're paying less attention to other very important things like J.P. Morgan admitting that the U.S. stock market is there to, be bet, to be bet against. Remember the old adage, don't bet against the American market? J.P. Morgan just put out an article that said, do that. That's right. Let's go China. But arrest Trump. Yeah. One of the other uh, narratives bubbling out that I, I didn't clip, but there's I've seen it in a couple places now, too, in, in mainstream media or legacy media circles, is they keep pointing out at the end of reports that Trump could still be elected president if indicted. And yeah. so that's another one I would pay attention to, and and, and I think he'll definitely at, be indicted. He's going to be indicted at, somewhere if he really if he wins the nomination, he'll be indicted. And that might also be what they're setting up for. Is you know right now they're looking at whether or not he'd be indicted, and that's unprecedented first in America's history, and it would certainly be another one if he's under indictment. 
and then wins the election. I guess that would probably throw us into quite a bit of turmoil, wouldn't well, it? Right. Well, it'll it'll discredit him from the start. And I take it back. They have to indict him prior to him winning the nomination. They have to do it when it when it's clear that he's going to win the nomination, because then it hands the other Republicans the narrative of you can't possibly nominate this man who's under indictment. That way it's the Republicans saying it and not just the Democrats. So they'll indict him. This is my prediction. They'll indict him just before he wins the nomination. Maybe, but I would but I would say that that the Republicans angle would not be as a way to thwart him. They would be in on oh. actually the the plan of of letting him be the indicted nominee. And I think you're right. We are. This is a setup for a Tahir Square moment. Uh, I think that that is what they'll do when and if Trump. I mean, that wins. interview with Fithian right. was yeah, that was back in 2016, and she's saying what you need is 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 white people to have access to this type of analysis. Well, they've had how many more years of access to that type of analysis? How much further along are we now? Where everybody's had their Marxist indoctrination. Well, it, this is the, uh, then uh, this is the perfect moment to give you an example of how far. Uh, oh, in, yeah, in Chicago, <laughs> in Chicago, I came across an interview. I'm looking into Brandon Johnson. I'm curious who this guy is. I've never, I had never heard of him before. Uh, I, I actually, I think I have him on video from when, when I recorded. The protests, uh, the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union protests in Chicago shortly after Rahm Emanuel was elected. I think that was in 2012. And uh, so he, I, I would bet that he's in the background or right next to Karen Lewis when I was recording that. Uh, I found a very interesting, I don't know how to describe it, a book promotion event that Brandon Johnson was a part of, along with the author. Brandon was a contributor to a book written uh, by a gentleman named Mark Warren. Mark Warren is a, let me, let me read you his, his bio, uh, and then uh, we, we won't have a, this is not going to be too much focused on Mark, but just to give you an example of what's happening here. Mark Warren is a professor of public policy and public affairs at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Mark studies and works with community and youth organizing groups seeking to promote equity and justice in education, community development, and American democratic life. Mark is the author of Dry Bones Rattling, uh, Community Building to Revitalize American Democracy, uh, and a number of other books. Uh, Mark is co-chair of the Urban Research-Based Action Network which is an acronym, the acronym for that is URBAN. <laughs> He's chair of the Urban Research-Based Action Network, URBAN, a national network of scholars and community activists designed to promote collaborations that produce research that advances racial equity and social justice. So the, it, URBAN is basically his think tank. It's He calls it the, his people's think tank. Uh, he's the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Fellow and has been the W.E.B. Dubois Fellow at Harvard University. Okay, so this is a very uh, esteemed professor uh, uh, with a relationship at Harvard and at University of Massachusetts, Boston. And who else is at this book promotion? Uh, well, a friend of Lisa Fithian's. 
the one and only Bill Ayers. Oh, yeah. Now, for people who don't know who Bill Ayers is, Jeremy, do you, do you, do you think you could encapsulate who Bill Ayers is in, in one or two sentences? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Bill Ayers was a founding member of the Weather Underground, which was a revolutionary group of Marxists back in the 60s. And he's from Chicago. He uh, had participated in many acts of um, property destruction, along with some people say actually resulted in death of people. He was wanted by the FBI. He was never uh, went to jail for any of his crimes that he committed with his wife, Bernadine Dorn. And he's now very high up in the education system. Uh, he's a professor, I believe. I think he's I think still he's a professor. I think he retired. Maybe, I think he retired. Maybe he's adjunct at University of Illinois, Chicago, and he's a regular fixture speaking on campuses across the country, teaching uh, people how to organize uh, for social change. That's a, that was very good, Jeremy. Completely off guard and uh, just ready at the on the tip of your tongue. Fantastic. That was, that was a very good description. Uh, a friend of Barack Obama. A very close friend. They shared an office together here in Chicago. They worked on boards together. And everybody conveniently ignored that in the election of Barack Obama uh, because Bill Ayers is completely respectable. So is his wife, Bernadine Dorn, who did spend time in jail. Uh, I think she was sentenced to four years in prison. And then she went on to teach, I believe she went on to teach law at Northwestern here, here, here in Illinois. Here in Chicago. So and, uh, uh, I would argue that he is a, a brilliant community organizer. Uh, dangerous, though, in a dangerous sense. He's not just some idiot, you know, that subscribes to Marxist theory. He is a oh, guy no. that he is a guy that that knows how to. Uh, accomplish it. I think he and, is the true spiritual leader of the Communist Party in the United States. Of the communist movement, not the communist party, but the communist movement. Uh, he's their guru. Let me give you, let's, for people who don't know, I know we have some younger audience members. Uh, one of the things they did, which is kind of relevant to today because January 6th was the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War, let's take a stroll down memory lane. This is from 1971. At one minute before one o'clock this morning, the switchboard at the Capitol received a phone call. A man's voice said a bomb would go off in the building in half an hour. At 1.30 in the morning, it did. In a small, unmarked restroom on the ground floor of the Senate side, next to a barber shop and near several small offices, including one committee hearing room. Yeah, so Weather Underground bombed the Capitol. They did that more than once, actually. They bombed yeah, and the, they bombed the Pentagon, too? They bombed the Pentagon. They bombed the State, yeah. the State Department. Uh, they conducted a number of bombings, and uh, uh, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn were absolutely unrepentant and remain unrepentant to this day. Here's a clip from the archives. This is Phil Donahue. Uh, some people are going to be too young to know who Phil Donahue was, but he was a 
uh, a daytime talk show host and he would land all these major interviews and so of course when Bernadine Dorn was uh, in federal prison he landed the interview with Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn and I believe he was known as a fellow traveler as well wasn't he known as a communist didn't he uh, subscribe to communism openly I think at some point in his career Phil Donahue yeah that's what I thought I just uh, I don't know I just always thought he was the original Oprah well, I'll get back to you on that one then. <laughs> Maybe that's all he was. Uh, so uh, Phil Donahue interviews them in prison, and they are uh, unrepentant. And I also, I have to believe that they've. there's some reason they're giving the interview to Phil Donahue. There's some reason that they're trusting him with this. Yeah, probably. I assume you have a grave misgivings about capitalism. Yes. Uh, would you like to see that abolished? I think that as long as it's based on profit, we'll okay. have the violence to... Would it be socialism it? or communism or a combination thereof? How it will look in the United States, I don't know. I can't right. tell you. Right. Yeah, they're cagey. They don't want to say, it could be socialism, it could be communism. We don't have to but we don't know. How can we know these things? We, we just know that capitalism needs to go. We don't, however, we cannot, however, end this interview with a declaration from both of you that under no circumstances ever again would you ever, ever engage in a political action such as, such as a, for example, a bombing. Fundamentally, what's changed in this country, I think, in the last 12 years, is the hearts and minds of people. And yours That's what's changed so in a profound way. Then. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying I think that the structure of the system has not changed at all. I've never met your parents, and it would be arrogant for me to presume, presume to speak for them. But let me try and speak for some other parents. They want you to renounce bombing as, in any event, as never excusable, regardless of how high the call or how uh, passionate and honorable the conscience. If I'm understanding you both, you cannot give us that statement. That's correct. I'm not saying everyone should go use violent tactics. But that, the question of people in the United States objecting, not going along with great crimes committed by this government, that that was brought home by the anti-war movement by a wide variety of reasons to our parents' generation, I think is fairly widely acknowledged and, and respected. Yes, it is. But you didn't need the bombs to do that. You needed the whole thing to do it. You agree, Bill? I think that we needed to do everything that we could, and I think it was that commitment to do everything that we could and to prove to people and to show ourselves as well, because we were swept up in this. We were not inventors of this. We were swept right. up in it and became a part of it. Uh, but to prove that people standing up can make a difference, that you don't have to sit passively by and allow the We're not talking about standing forward. up and making a difference. We're talking about actions which endanger the lives of innocent people. We did not, we did not take the lives of innocent people. Uh, you certainly endangered them. If you had anything at all to do with the bombing, there's no way to bomb something without endangering the lives of innocent people. Well, if people. we did 30 or 40 bombings and no one was hurt, then, you know, we were, we were quite careful with the but tactic. He's a very careful bomber. I'd never heard him admit to doing 30 or 40 bombings. They did a lot of bombings, and they were violent. They were, uh, they were looking to murder people up until they had their little accident in Greenwich, Connecticut, where they blew up their bomb factory townhome. That was in March of 1970. I've interviewed him several times. Oh, yeah. I hope that doesn't. 
you had said you thought Phil Donahue was a communist. That's why he was talking to him. When you land the premiere interview with them when she's <laughs> in prison, okay, then I'm I'm going to become a little suspicious. <laughs> Walking up to them on the street is not quite Phil Donahue. Uh, yeah, so they were they they committed a lot of bombings here. Listen to how bad this gets. I found this clip from the Woodrow Wilson Center. This is Arthur Eckstein, and he's talking about and I had I had never heard this before that the 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 bomb that blew up in the town home in Greenwich, Connecticut was actually just one of three bombings that were supposed to take place, and they were going to be very violent, and the whole thing was covered up. Listen to this. For four decades, Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, and Jeff Jones have asserted that the Fort Dix plan of lethal bombing was essentially a rogue operation. And by the way, when he says four decades, this clip is from 2013, so it's, it's 53 years ago when this happened. Done by the crazies of the townhouse. It was the shock and surprise caused by the deadly explosion that led to the general reevaluation of strategy and the abandonment of lethality. But I want to show that the Fort Dix attack was known to the weather leadership and approved. And when he says the Fort Dix attack, the bomb that went off in the, in the bomb factory townhome in Greenwich, Connecticut, that was a bomb that was meant uh, for a, uh, for a uh, Fort Dix military base. Uh, they were going to, they were attempted, it was a nail bomb, and it would have absolutely wounded and probably killed people. And even more, that there was a second lethal attack planned for that day, March 6, 1970, in Detroit. So that's a coordinated, multi-state terrorist attack. The Fort Dix dynamite attack was aborted by the townhouse explosion. The Detroit attack was aborted because the Detroit police discovered the two powerful dynamite bombs before they went off. Probably the three lethal dynamite attacks planned for March 6, 1970 in two separate cities was a coordinated operation. Uh, otherwise, it's a truly bizarre coincidence. I want to stress that if these actions had been successful, if those bombs had gone off, the political results would have been absolutely horrendous. Weatherman would have killed dozens of people in a single day, mostly U.S. soldiers and police, but many ordinary civilians as well. We can't imagine the savagery of the repression imposed by the Nixon government that would have followed. The U.S. would be a different country today. The story of the triple attack has been covered up for 43 years. Now 53 years. Well, I guess it wasn't covered up the last 10 years. <laughs> so these guys were incredibly violent, and when it blew up in their faces, they, they changed tactics and became peaceful bombers. Teachers. Careful bombers. Teachers of kids. Well, no, no, no. This is before they became teachers of kids. They then became, they went underground. That's when they became weather underground, and they bombed targets that that they knew would not kill people that's when they uh went after the capital that's when they went after uh state department they went after symbolic targets yeah uh, to not murder people they modulated because uh, uh i guess it's bad it's bad press if you if you murder uh, yourselves while you're trying to murder other people uh so 
last clip I'll play to, to sort of give background on Weather Underground. These people were looking to not just commit localized murder. They were looking forward to post-revolution when their buddies in the CCP and Cuba and Russia would be coming to occupy the United States. And they were talking about what they're going to do with the people, the, 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 the diehard capitalists who can't be converted. And this is from a documentary called No Place to Hide. Uh, Larry Grathwell, who was an undercover member of the Weather Underground, talks about the group's casual planning to murder 25 million people. They expected that the Cubans and the North Vietnamese and the Chinese and the Russians would all want to occupy different portions of the United States. They also believed that their immediate responsibility would be to protect against what they called the counter-revolution. And uh, they felt that this counter-revolution could best be guarded against by creating and establishing re-education centers in the Southwest, uh, where we would take all the people who needed to be re-educated into the new way of thinking and teach them how things were going to be. I ask, well, what is going to happen to those people that we can't re-educate, that are die-hard cap capitalists? And the reply was that they'd have to be eliminated. And when I pursued this further, they estimated that they would have to eliminate 25 million people in these re-education centers. And when I say eliminate, I mean kill. Wait, I'm, I'm a little confused on the curriculum at the re-education center. <laughs> if, it, <laughs> if it just leads to 25 million dead people. 25 million people. I want you to imagine sitting in a room with 25 people, most of which have graduate degrees from Columbia and other well-known educational centers and hear them figuring out the logistics for the elimination of 25 million people. And they were dead serious. Yeah, and that's a very important clip because people need to understand that what we're dealing with here is not really a left-right issue in the American sense, the liberal conservative. This is about communist elites who have decided who's worthy of living and who's worthy of dying. And uh, back then it was manifest in the Vietnam War protests. Today it's really manifest in uh, mostly global warming. That's where they're determining who's going to get to live and who's going to get to die. Uh, that guy Larry Grathwell is pretty cool. I met him a long time ago. Wasn't he in fear of his life for a long time because of this? Yeah. I mean, he infiltrated the weather underground. And, uh, it, I mean, it was really important work. Um, I mean, it really laid out. What Larry did. Yeah. Not the weather underground. No, no. What he did in infiltrating them and, and really getting it an understanding of, of who they were and what they were really out to do. Well, so isn't that great company for potentially the next mayor of Chicago? <laughs> Bill Ayers is apparently very good friends with Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson, who let's, let's just take a look here. Let's see. 
think I have it here. Where where is it? Uh, yeah, let's see. He won one hundred twenty-one thousand seventy-seven votes. That was twenty-one percent, twenty-one point six percent of the people who voted in Chicago are on board with Brandon Johnson, and Brandon Johnson is on board with Bill Ayers. Here is Bill Ayers introducing Mark Warren, who is the author of this book that Brandon Johnson is a contributor to. Contributor to. Uh, lift us up, don't push us out. So it's this is the three of them on this panel. You have you have Mark Warren, Harvard, former Harvard professor, Harvard. Then you have Brandon Johnson, uh, potential next mayor of Chicago, and Bill Ayers, unrepentant domestic terrorist. I've known Brandon for a while um, around the CTU. I first heard about Mark Warren. Um, from his students who, when he was a professor at Harvard, and they were excited to have this professor who seemed to know as much about community organizing as anything, and really made the link between community organizing, creating democracy, and teaching, which have a lot in common. Um, but, but Mark has been very explicit in kind of creating the conditions to understand the ways in which education and organizing and fighting for a more robust um, participatory society all go together. Okay, pay attention when the unrepentant domestic terrorist communist tells you that the uh, that organizing and teaching and building democracy are all related and it's terrific. You might want to pay attention to that out there in America. This book is um, comes at a propitious moment, which is a moment when as Brandon will talk about, the CTU has done so much to push forward the notion of social justice unionism, or another way of saying it, has done so much to fight for public education beyond kind of fighting for the rights of teachers and the, the importance of teaching and so on. They have really led a fight in Chicago and led our now disgraced and stepping down mayor uh, in a in a head-to-head -head struggle over whether the schools were worth fighting for. And I can't say they've won in the sense of any definitive final battle, but I think they've shown us the way. So I just want to point out a couple of things. Uh, note that he used the term social justice unionism. This book is... Um, comes at a propitious moment, which is a moment when, as Brandon will talk about, the CTU has done so much to push forward the notion of social justice unionism. And that what that really means is organizing the community way beyond education. Please remember, the CTU is the Chicago Teachers Union. So what you really have here is how this is how the communist, this is how the Marxist movement in Chicago goes in and co-ops using a union, go, goes in and, and basically co-ops the community, co-ops the culture. Or another way of saying it has done so much to fight for public education beyond kind of fighting for the rights of teachers and the the importance of teaching. So everything becomes a fight for public education and they're, they're, they're using public education as the front to bring all of the change that they want to bring. And, you know, that's, that's pretty much, that, that's, that's right along the playbook where they hijack 
an issue and use it to introduce what is the the solution, the cure-all, which of course is always Marxism. But what they don't say Marxism. They they call it the public sector, expanding the public space public sector, expanding the public space and access to the public space. Uh, and just to hear, there, Brandon Johnson is an organizer all the way. Listen to this comment, and this is going to, you've read Rules for Radicals, yes, Jeremy? Is that Saul Alinsky's book? The Saul Alinsky book, Rules for Radicals, and uh, you're going to recognize this from that book the, this sentiment is in that book what, what i have found in my organizing experience um it, it's it's brought history to life in a way that uh i guess i never would have imagined so when i remember reading about the edmund pettus bridge if you will mm-hmm. um everybody that i've ever spoken to was on that bridge <laughs> right? like everybody marched for dr king when he was in yeah, chicago yeah, yeah. right and you know, as organizers, sometimes, you know, we have a way of helping to energize folks where maybe 50 people were there, but it was 250 people there, right? That, and, and I understand why, why we do that as organizers. Yeah, I understand why we lie as organizers <laughs> to excite our groups. I mean, that's right out of Rules for Radicals. I forget which rule it is, but the, the Saul Linsky talks about... Uh, basically setting up a, a goal for the group that he knew was obtainable and sent them marching into the city office to demand what they were already entitled to. Right. So I, I just found it amazing how openly they're laughing about that they use dishonesty to achieve their ends, even within their own group. And that's well, something to remember. seems like he's going to be a great mayor. He's... You have to give him a chance. (laughs) (laughs) So here he talks about that there is a school system within the school system. Listen to how divisive this guy is. You know, I've learned a lot as a public school teacher in Chicago um, that there are, uh, there's a school system within a school system. Um, There's a system that works very well for, for a handful of families in Chicago. And then there's the rest of us. By the way, no, there is no system that works well for any families in Chicago. There are families who can escape the system in Chicago. And then there's everyone who's stuck in the system of Chicago. The system of Chicago works for nobody. Also notice that he said the rest of us. And he's he's taking himself out of the privileged class. Oh, wait. But it, but Paul McKinley <laughs> argued the exact opposite we are the so, other day. This is exactly where we're going, and, and you're going to tee it up perfectly. What does, what does Paul say about, about, about Mr. Brandon Johnson? What's his number one complaint? Well, he said he's not really part of their, their community and that he's, he's uh, not even born in America, that he's from a different country so he doesn't share the same experience as- i think he was born in america it was his it was his family that wasn't oh and by the way i went looking for oh, his background right? on wikipedia his background is wiped his personal life that the 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 segment is non-existent there's nothing there under personal life this guy's number two uh, possible for mayor in chicago and his personal life is not uh, put up on wikipedia that seems suspicious to me 
He's well, trying to avoid it. Yeah, you take away anything that uh, isn't going to fit the narrative. So here he talks about his his ancestry. Public education is something that I think really speaks to like the 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 core of the fight of my ancestry. <laughs> that public accommodations have to exist in order for black families to exist. That absent public accommodations, um, the opportunity to live with dignity and to have a shot at, you know, what my ancestors could only characterize as a dream. That absent a significant intervention by the state, by the government, to provide what should be a guaranteed right access to all that is public and to expand that, to fund it, and to protect it. That that fight that made my life possible is a fight that clearly is still alive today. Mm-hmm. And it's one that I don't apologize for. So where is he? Where is his family from again? I think it was Haiti, uh, according to Paul McKinley. And he, then, uh, he grew up in Elgin. So he is he is creating this story, this narrative, that for his ancestors, the American dream was just a dream. It was it wasn't real. It was just an idea. It was it was it required the public sector to make his ancestors' dream real. Right? Yeah. Okay, well, let me take you through some more of him (laughs) because as he goes on, everything he begins to say, I think, betrays the image that he's creating for himself. Uh, And and, and let me me take you through it. First of all, here, this this clip is important because it it sets up... uh, It it, it sets up... uh, the contradiction. You know, I don't really consider myself a writer. Um, in fact, um, I got a real hard lesson in college when I realized I didn't know what a comma splice was and $80,000 later in student loans. <laughs> you figured that I'm one now out. an expert. <laughs> $80,000 in student loans. That is an elitist move all the way. You're one. Of, you're part of the one percent, man. If you're if you are attending a American university and taking out eighty thousand dollars in loans, working class people don't get to do that. They're they're working jobs. They're not getting that advantage in life, but he's got access to that. Oh yeah. Now eighty thousand dollars in loans. I feel for the guy. That's awful to have eighty thousand dollars in loans. It's it's that that to me is one of the modern day slaveries in our country. We should forgive him. We should have him forgiven. Well, yes, it's not his fault. <laughs> well, so and then he because he's got this debt, and he's you know he's got a government job. He's got a union job. What he said he was a teacher, so he had a government job. Uh, he was complaining that despite he and his wife having all these degrees, that they couldn't afford their home. My wife and I, several degrees in our home, 
And we needed two government programs to help us buy our first house. Yes. I'm going to suggest there might be something wrong with either your degrees. <laughs> well, let's just stop there. There might be something wrong with your degrees. <laughs> if you have multiple degrees in your home and you can't afford your home. Yeah, but how about they've are but he said they had they needed two government programs to get it. Right, that there's that public And then they again. did. Yes. Then they got it, right? They got so what's it. he complaining about? We did everything right and needed two programs to buy a house for $147,000. So this guy he couldn't afford a home for $147,000 probably because he's got $80,000 in debt and a degree in protesting. Exactly. And so if this is what it's like for working class folks, 87% of our students are poor. Sir, you are not working class. Working class, don't they don't go to elite colleges. They don't rack up 80k in debt. Frankly, they're smarter than that. Well, Maybe I'm being cynical towards the man. Maybe I'm being jaded. Well, you're speaking from a place of white privilege. <laughs> That's how I can notice the privilege in somebody else. <laughs> He's got privilege written all over him. Listen to this story that he tells. He thinks that this story is illustrative of the struggle that he went through, and that continues on. But when you listen to the end of this story, the struggle's over, baby. You know, my father, you know, raised us in working class families. Sometimes we were low income. I mean, it wasn't poverty, it, 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 which low income basically means you eat. You just don't like what you eat, basically. <laughs> and uh, there were tough days. You know, the lights and the water um, weren't always working. Uh, but every now and then my father would stuff us all in the station wagon, you know, before you had to wear seatbelts. And, uh, you know, we would all just hope and pray that he would come out with 10 Sundays, that this would be the day that we would finally get those banana splits of those Sundays. And, he, of course, he would disappoint us and come out with the dilly bar <laughs> and uh, the sad dilly bars. And, you know, and I, I, I can't help but just appreciate the work that my father did because every two weeks when he got paid, he wanted us to have just a little bit, an ice cream cone. And now you have a political structure that is so mean that they have animosity because I can now afford a blizzard. <laughs> right? The hope is that my kids can get their, I mean, they're vegan, so I don't know what they get when you're vegan now. It's new age black folks, which that's another observation. Yeah, I'd say once you're raising vegans, the, the struggle is over. <laughs> you <Yeah>. won. <laughs> feel sorry for the kids. <laughs> yeah, vegan ice cream is terrible. There go our vegan ice cream sponsorships. Uh, so... At least they had plenty to eat during COVID. Didn't you tell me that was all that you could get in the grocery store? <laughs> the, the, it, that and fake meat. You could get fake meat everywhere. Left. Fake meat yeah. was everywhere. Nobody Shells wanted were that. were full of vegan food. <laughs> Weird how that worked. So he he talks more about his, his ancestry uh, 
And uh, well, not really his ancestry. He talks about not being able to relate to everybody in the black community, which I clipped because that struck me as something that, again, that, that Paul McKinley had talked about. And so even this guy, even Brandon Johnson, knows he can't hide from this, so he's talking about it. As much as I believe there should be more black teachers and black as many black men as possible to teach, just be- and Wait, and didn't Paul say that, that Brandon Johnson presided over uh, Mayor Lightfoot firing a bunch of black teachers? No, it was more complicated than that, but it tied back to him working with uh, the old- president of the teachers union in chicago what was her name karen, karen lewis uh, lewis and in the negotiations there when they were striking that ended up leading to ten thousand black teachers being fired which paul's argument was that the reason they needed to get rid of those older teachers was to bring in the newer younger teachers who are more radically educated and ready to you know push the uh, indoctrination in the schools. Okay, gotcha. Here, I'll run it again. As much as I believe there should be more black teachers and black as many black men as possible to teach, just because I'm black doesn't automatically mean I connect with every black boy that comes through the building. Yeah. It's not. Case in point, never forget one of my students, uh, won't say his name, but I was... Um, uh, to, uh, hanging out in the hall or something, and uh, he comes up to me because when I'm when I'm a little when I'm just kind of sitting still, I didn't realize that I do this. I kind of play with my, my my marriage band, right? And so one of the kids came up to me, hey, Mr. Johnson, I'm like, yes, is that your marriage band? I mean, so you catch that? He's doing a black voice. He's doing like an urban black voice. What is he Hey, Mr. Johnson, I'm like, yes, is that your marriage band? I mean, so he's asking me all these questions about marriage, and he basically was like, how do you do that? <laughs> What's that about? Like, his experience, like, I grew up with uncles, my father. Like, I saw marriages growing up. This particular black boy didn't see as much as that, right? And so there's just these connections that I believe that we do have, but just because that we we walk in a certain element doesn't mean that we automatically relate. And so sometimes, whether you're a black teacher, a white teacher, more conservative, a radical, a leftist, challenging our thinking in this space is the best thing that we can do in this political moment. So he, on one hand claims his heritage, his ancestry, uh, for his ancestors, the American dream was just a dream, which I think is him laying claim to Martin Luther King Jr.'s, uh, you know, I have a dream speech. I think he knows what he's doing when he uses that language. But then he has to admit, yeah, I didn't actually grow up in the same circumstances that, that, Black Americans, uh, American descendants of slavery and people, black Americans who suffered through Jim Crow. He didn't have that experience. He had an intact family unit. His family wasn't destroyed by the drug war. His family wasn't destroyed by Biden's legislation. His, his family was intact. So I think Paul McKinley's got a point that this guy doesn't share the same trauma but I, I, that may be the attraction for these old white commies. They like that his kids are vegan. He's acceptable to them. Do you think he's going to win? Well, I think he would be the honest choice for this city, <laughs> this commie city. 
I don't know, 100,000 something voters is a lot. And I and, and a number of the candidates who lost threw their support to him. So I don't know. Paul says he's not going to win because Paul says he's not going to carry a single black district. I, I, I just don't know. Here's Bill Ayers singing his praises. I mean, when you've got Bill Ayers singing your praises... In America, I guess that's a badge of honor now. But if you were, uh, if you walked through uh, the Capitol uh, uh, through the ropes uh, because you were invited through an open door by a Capitol policeman, that's the worst attack that has occurred since uh, the Civil War. And what Brandon's talking about, education is a human right. I have a right to have, within walking distance, a school that's fully resourced, fully funded, decent, educationally forward-looking. I don't have to jump through hoops to get to that. I walk down the street and get to it. It, 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 Bill Ayers having the model school, the model model school according to an unrepentant terrorist, uh, domestic terrorist. (laughs) The, The people let him anywhere near children is unbelievable. And here he is singing Brandon Johnson's praises and, and Brandon, uh, it's it's no wonder that Bill Ayers loves Brandon. Listen to this. Brandon wants to be more radical. We have to actually become, in my opinion, more radical in Chicago. Demand that we have sustainable community schools where there's a neighborhood school that families can walk to and that it's a guaranteed right that they're fully resourced. And when people tell us no, I mean, I'm one of 10. I mean, no was just, I mean, that's just what you heard before you demanded something again, you know? Like, we have to actually put that effort forward. And then I think people will see as they have and begin to place a demand on what we can offer to the rest of the country. Yes, yes. It's really, I mean, it's, it's really so, Chicago is such a case study in this stuff. Congratulations, Brandon. You've got Bill Ayers very excited. You're talking his language. Oh, I'm going to move back. People should flee. If you have your children in this system, you this is you have to know that you are uh, you're in an extremely radicalized system. Here, listen to how Brandon Johnson talks about how he uses the CTU to reach into community organizations and radicalize people in community organizations. And so, one of the things that we had to come some agreement around is our commitment to organizations like the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, BPNC, Action Now, these organizations that have been fighting for a long time on on a variety of issues of how do we engage in a very radical way that places pressure points in spaces where you may not have convinced the masses just yet. And so at the time, we began to link with these community organizations, and it was the community organizations that called the union to be more radical. Now, there were folks within our space that had, you know, those proclivities, but I don't know if you all saw eight years ago or so when there was a big march past the mayor's house. Now people do it all the time now. But the original crew that did that, we were part of that the Chicago Teachers Union, and quite frankly, it was the community organizations that pushed us to take a more radical approach to how you engage the neighborhood and speak truth to power and challenge these structures that are in place. Radical, radical, radical. I was ringing the bell every time he says radical. He says radical it. so many times in this in this uh, event. No, again, no wonder he's best pals with somebody radical 
like a, a an unrepentant domestic terrorist, Bill Ayers. So vote Brandon Johnson. Absolutely vote Brandon Johnson. <laughs> uh, and not only, the, it, it, we're almost through with this, but he's, let me just highlight for you what a hypocrite this guy is. And by the way, I don't know that Paul Vallis is any better. I'm sure Paul Vallis in his own ways is, is uh, we could probably devote an entire episode to him too. But I don't know if Paul no. Vallis is hanging out with Bill Ayers, <laughs> with unrepentant domestic terrorists. Uh, uh, here, there's a Q&A section and, and there's somebody in the audience, unfortunately, I don't, we, there's no identity uh, attached to it. So I don't know who, who this guy is, but he asks Brandon Johnson about the potential conflict between the words coming out of his mouth and his teaching position in a selective enrollment school. I wanted to ask, do your own personal philosophy of education conflicts with your workspace? And if it does, how do you kind of monitor and gauge that? It's a good question. Yes, it always does. I taught at Westinghouse, I said. Westinghouse is a selective enrollment school. That is in conflict with my philosophy, right? It's actually um, a contradiction. It's hypocritical. I'm teaching in a structure that actually weeds out a certain element of my, of, of my neighborhood. So, yes. Okay, so he's been called out on his hypocrisy. And he admits, yeah, I've got, I've got hypocrisy, but, but here's how I make up for it. Um, my students sometimes would get frustrated. I didn't offer any test prep. Many of my other colleagues were doing it at the time. I was pushing our administration to move away from that. To be quite frank with you, I didn't issue a lot of homework for students. Um, that was my own way of sort of rebelling against the structure. Uh, so it wasn't his way of teaching the students. It was his way <laughs> of rebelling against the structure. Um, I, I don't think I ever gave a kid an F. I just, I, I don't, I don't know how a student sits in front of you and fails. Wait, if you have no homework and no test prep, how could you get an F? There's nothing to fail. I know some professors may find that, you know, you know, it's slightly troubling because <laughs> you've probably seen other things, but not the know, professors in this no, room. Of course we're all not, with right? you. We're, we're there. So, once so, again, so, once I mean, again, he's right in line with Bill Ayers. Okay. So his, he is voicing my own, I, I, the way that I combated the, the, the fact that I worked in this institution that, that neglected people in the community. So basically it plays favorites. Okay, it plays favorites with uh, students who can earn their way into this selective enrollment public school. But then listen to this. This is the ultimate hypocrisy within a hypocrisy. Um, I taught at a selective enrollment school, much like I taught at a neighborhood school, you know, where I use a lot of inquiry base and I would challenge my honor students um, in particular to think beyond whatever it is they're able to like remember, you know, that their ability to just regurgitate. Did you hear the, did you hear what I'm talking about? Did you catch the incredibly hypocritical moment there? To teach beyond their ability no. to remember? No, listen to this again. Um, I taught at a selective enrollment school, much like I taught at a neighborhood school, you know, where I use a lot of inquiry base and I would challenge my honor students um, in particular. I would challenge my honor students in particular. So he is applying selective 
uh, practice to his own students. He's giving more attention to what? To the students who are most capable of receiving his message. He has selective enrollment in his own classroom. Yeah. The dude is a total hypocrite. And it makes sense because- presidential material oh it's only a matter of time just like just like uh bill Ayers' other friend barack obama so i'm going to finish this off with one last clip this is the clip that's going to make your blood boil made my blood boil this is how manipulative they are and again it's another clip about how he reaches into the community how he uses his tactics and his union to radicalize people who are not otherwise radical. And he, he, this anecdote, he picks a particularly vulnerable group and it's absolutely disgusting. So when you ask like, what is the CTU doing or what are we doing collectively? This is the hard part for me to be honest with you. We have to begin to find allies that, may not necessarily have the same sort of radical approach that we have for public education, but there are issues that are related to public schools that people can embrace. For instance, special education, for instance, right? So you might have a random organization or community group that is really big on providing services to families with special needs. Not your marchers taking over banks marching past you know the mayor's house but are these valuable people and voices that we can add to this movement where maybe over time some of these folks could come more radicalized but their input actually allows us to broaden out our movement that's the moment i actually began to despise brandon johnson (laughs) he's talking about co-opting a totally vulnerable group to radicalize them he's taking advantage of special needs kids he sounds like a dangerous person. He certainly hangs out with dangerous people. He likes making them proud. I'm glad I got out of that city. What are you still doing there? I love it here, Jeremy. The weather. It's the weather. Man. There's and, nothing and the skyline. that makes me want to go back there. Nothing. Oh, Jeremy, the skyline is beautiful. No. I like cornfields. The restaurants, Jeremy. No, Culver's. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, that's uh, it's. It, this has been a very radical show. I have to yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> we got them all in here. Well, I hope everybody's feeling cheery and happy after this one. It, it, cheery, happy, and ready to open their wallets. <laughs> That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We've reached the point in the program where we get to explain to you how this is all done. You may have noticed there are no ads on the Truth Bait podcast. And that's not just because nobody wants to advertise on the Truth Bait podcast. Everybody wants to advertise on the Truth Bait podcast. Jeremy, didn't Pfizer write us wanting to advertise on our podcast? 
Pfizer. I got an email from Brandon Johnson for a campaign ad. <laughs> and we're not taking it. That's right. We do not take corporate sponsorship. But it's tempting. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we can talk. We'll talk. We can talk. Maybe there's a vehicle we could set up. Yeah, I mean, look, how much money do they have? I mean, I don't know. We only take citizen sponsorship. Our listeners are not just passive listeners to a podcast. Our listeners... All of you out there who hear me, you are active listeners. You are producers of this podcast. This is done via the value for value model. And what that means is if you have been listening to the show and you think that what we have been producing for you, what Jeremy and I have been presenting, the brilliant analysis that Jeremy presented at the beginning of the program, warning you that what the left is doing with Trump is setting up a uh, to hear square moment. If that is a value to you, and it is certainly a value to me, if the analysis that I just delivered about Brandon Johnson hanging out with unrepentant domestic terrorist commies in the United States, uh, if that is a value to you, we ask that you return value to the program. There are multiple ways to return value to the program. Time, talent, and treasure. Frankly, the most important way that we can uh, ask people to return value to the program is to share the show. Hashtag share the show. Share the show with all of your friends. Share the show with all your enemies. Share the show with your mailman uh, or mail carrier. Um, share the show. Definitely share the show with your psychiatrist. If anybody out there is in therapy, I think definitely share the show with your therapist. That really is the number one way to help us right now is to spread the word to like-minded people who you think might benefit uh, from this or uh, uh, non-like-minded people who you feel like torturing with this. Uh, that is really helpful. Uh, the, another helpful way is to write us and give us feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. Let us know what you want to hear. Like I said, you are producers of this podcast. And let me tell you, Jeremy, the producers of our podcast are responsible for the next segment that's coming up after this. That's how this works. We had producers, in fact, we had more than one producer, but a big DNAZ wrote in, sent me a clip regarding Tucker Carlson and said, you guys have to cover this. This is not, this is not being covered enough. Uh, now, you and I may beg to differ on that, but listen, he's our producer. He's an active listener. And that is how this program works, especially now. Get in on the ground level, people. Write us and let us know what you want. The next the next segment coming up is going to be because of uh, Big D and AZ and somebody else who wrote in. Jeremy, who else wrote in on that? Uh, Dan, Dan King in Janesville, Wisconsin. And he also wrote about Tucker. So you guys like Tucker out there, I think. Or maybe not. I don't know. What did Big D say? Uh, let me let me pull up Big D's uh, accompanying text. Uh, hold on. I closed my text program while we're recording because uh, I don't want it to ding through. And, oh, and now I see your text. Can we pause before the ask? I have to call the car mechanic back. <laughs> Do you want to pause? No, I already talked to him. Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. Let me know which part of the show you want me to play back for you. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Big D uh, in AZ wrote in, this audio clip is underplayed. And he sent me Tucker Carlson being interviewed by Bo Snurdly. And it is regarding the texts that uh, that 
that Tucker Carlson wrote uh, regarding Donald Trump uh, during and after the uh, the protests and the uh, uh, the stolen election and the protests that followed. Um, that was his. We had other uh, people who wrote in too. Let me bring up because this was this was great. I, we need to thank uh, cruise director Barb. She has been sharing the show uh, magnificently. She sent me a note that she sent the show to f- at least fifteen people. Uh, cruise director Barb, thank you so much. She also said, "I love the new way you start the show, and I love the uh, music." Thank you, thank you, uh, Cruise yeah. Director Barb. Uh, thank you. One comment: Jeremy has to remember on his own to introduce you, uh, or just go ahead and introduce yourself. It sounds stupid when you have to ask him to introduce you. You know, Jeremy, she's absolutely right. Uh, what in the world's going on here? Why do you keep forgetting to introduce me? Well, I forgot to write it down. <laughs> Actually, you introduced me today. I think we're improving on that. Yeah, I think. I'm trying to do better, Barb. Here's what else she said. She said, clearly, the distraction of the decade is Trump's arrest. I mean, yeah. how exciting is that? We're, people are learning. I think so. That's great. The distraction of the week. That's right, right, Cruise Director Barb. You are catching and there, on. And there is a reason for it. We'll, we will see what that reason is, but there's there's a reason that goes beyond just distracting us. Uh, and by the way, since it is Friday, let's just let's go ahead and give that one the distraction of the week. It is the distraction of the week. It's not a distraction in the long run. If you're correct that it is setting up for Tahir Square. Well, I it's it it's setting up for. I I do believe it's setting the stage for the activation of the violent left. So how that manifests. Jeremy, I can draw a straight line between your comments and a Tahir Square moment with President uh, Trump in the White House. I see it. I can see it coming. You're 100% correct. Well, we'll see. I hope Our listeners I'm, may not. I guess I hope I'm not correct. No, I mean, I hope I am, but are. I hope if I'm not. If he wins, that is you know, what's like coming. I wanna, I, we all know I love being right. <laughs> well, you're not used to being I wrong. Don't love being right. <laughs> you're not used to being wrong. That's I, the problem. Our is, producers you know, may not realize that you're right. I'm here to tell them, as an ambassador to the mind of Jeremy Siegel, he's right, and get used to it. Sometimes uh, there is another way to give. We just don't have it set up. We were hoping to have it set up by episode ten, and that was uh, to uh, give via cash. Uh, you know what? We don't even deserve people's money yet. I don't think we, we ten episodes. You really think we deserve to ask for people's money? No, I think we deserve to ask for people to share the show. We deserve to ask for people to give us feedback to become active producers and members of this community. Eventually, we will reserve the right to ask for at least a thousand dollars per listener per month, which is, I think. The least we could ask from people for for kind of what I was gonna say. I mean, it doesn't have to be a thousand, but I was gonna say like because we don't have the website ready to take donations yet. But that just gives you an opportunity to save, save your money to donate later. Or if you are somebody who builds websites and wants to build a website for us and return value to us that way, we are open for business. 
There, and then we can promote your website building skills. That's exactly right. Because that is the only way that we will promote something is if we like it or if you're a part of our value for value network. That's value for value. You get We get a value of getting our site. You get to listen to the show and we get to hopefully help you get more website business. That's double value for you. You're getting the value of the show and you're getting value of promotion. So... Uh, I'm trying to think if there was anybody else that I'm, I feel like I'm missing somebody who wrote in. Um, oh, uh, uh, again, it was your, it was, uh, the other one who wrote in about Trump who wrote it, Dan, Dan King. Yes. Yeah. What did he write? Dan says, no, he didn't write about Trump. He wrote about Tucker. I'm sorry about Tucker. What did he write? Yeah. He writes, I know you guys don't like Tucker, but there is something different about him. Have you ever seen a media personality do this? Apologize. And here's what he's talking about. He sent the clip. So, Dan, thank you uh, for sending the clip because I certainly couldn't have gone and found this one myself. And here it is. And I think it's an interesting point, Dan. Are we going to get? What is one of your biggest regrets in your career? Oh, defending the Iraq war. That is it? Well, I've had a million regrets not being more skeptical calling people names when I should have listened to what they were saying. Look, when you when someone makes a claim, there's only one question that's important at the very beginning, which is, is the claim true or not? Mm. And for too long, I participated in the culture where I was like, anyone who thinks outside these pre-prescribed lanes is crazy, is a conspiracy theorist. And I just really regret that. I'm ashamed that I did that. And, and partly it was age, partly it was the world that I grew up in. So when you when you look at me and you're like, yeah, of course they're part of the means of control. I'm like, that's obvious to you because you're 28, but I just didn't see it at all, at all. And I'm ashamed of that. Isn't that what the media tries to do though? It, it's their only purpose. Right. They're not here to inform you, really? Even on the big things that really matter, like the economy and war and COVID and like things that really matter that will affect you. No, their job is not to inform you. They are working for the small group of people who actually run the world. They're their servants. They're their Praetorian guard. And we should treat them with maximum contempt because they have earned it. Wow. Hey. So that Contr- was Tucker contrite. on a podcast being interviewed. Um, and I I totally lost the name of the podcast that it was on. That it was came, on Russell Brand's podcast. Well, it was on Russell Brand, but it was actually, he pulled it from somebody oh, else. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Ooh, this is incestuous then. (laughs) We'll try to find it. But this is a podcast uh, within a podcast within a podcast at this point. Yeah. Anyways, Dan, um, yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And you don't uh, generally hear any sort of reporters uh, talking this way. And I wouldn't say that I don't like Tucker. And I don't know that Andrew doesn't like Tucker. Wasn't he in your movie? He was. I, on a personal level, I have no animosity towards Tucker. I have a problem with his genre. I have a problem with his medium. I have a problem right. with all cable news. I have a problem right. with people thinking that they can, that, that, that Tucker Carlson or anybody like that is the answer to, to the problems that we are suffering under right now. They're not. They're, yeah. they're, you need to look at them more as entertainment than anything else. And I don't really know Tucker uh, well. I've emailed with him before. I even at one point in time uh, had an agreement to write at his website, the Daily Caller, back 
in the day. And I mean, he was very nice and friendly. Um, Affable guy. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, it's not that I don't like Tucker, but I don't like Fox news. And the way that I see it is whether or not Tucker is, is genuine or not. Um, you know, I think what I've been trying to portray is, is, is we don't know. And I would say even with this, with his comments here, you know, something a lot of people are coming to realize is, I mean, I was somebody that supported the Iraq war. So did was you, I. Andrew? Yes, I yeah. did. Most of us were duped into that. So this is another sort of case where he, you know, can kind of, so this is his biggest regret he's ever had was promoting the Iraq war. Um, that's an easy thing to get you know, good agreement from everybody from. And with regard to his kind of slamming the rest of the media, the way media functions now, you know, my argument is that Tucker is working at Fox News. He's allowed to report the things he's allowed to report. And he's allowed to say the things he's allowed to say. We'll see. We'll see so if you're, he you're sticks saying around. That this, is, this is much like when Jon Stewart uh, went on... Uh, Colbert's show and said, said COVID of, came from China. Right, everyone know. Of course, it came from the lab. It gave them permission to admit now to themselves and openly that yes, of course, it came from a lab. You're saying that this is this is serving the same sort of function. Yeah, it could be. He could be. Look, I you know I don't know Tucker, so he could be sincere in in what he's saying. But this is the sentiment that is you know, bolstering people's last remaining positive views about Fox News. Without Tucker, I don't know what they have left as far as having like a conservative, you know, base audience. And and I'm not necessarily arguing him, arguing that he's some sort of sinister personality, but that he has to work within a framework that the network allows him to work in. And he's acknowledging that here, but how long does he stay at Fox news? If he starts spouting these views, these types of views, unless it's what they want him to say, <laughs> it's either what they want him to say or he's going to get canned. Right. And they don't care about ratings. Glenn Beck was uh, uh, was at the top of his ratings when they clipped him. So they, they'll, they'll cut you loose if they, if they don't like what you're saying. But that said, Jeremy, I thought that what he was saying was it sounded sincere to me. I think he's a pretty sincere guy. And again, I think what people need to realize is his number one uh, goal in life is not the movement. His number one goal in life is to be the most successful broadcaster he can be. Please take that accordingly. And Make- Fox Fox News' role is not lying about everything. Fox News' role is reporting lots of true things in an in a way that advances the narrative goals in the dialectical attacks that we're under. So some of that it's just like Alex Jones, like. This guy has a lot of accurate reports, and then he goes and reports about UFOs. I know. You know so I just now can't he's, listen to him. I know so, so he's, many people can't, love him, but why? He reports a lot of things that are accurate, but he also reports a lot of things that are completely off the wall. And, and the reason is that, that the things that are accurate then are not 
taken yeah. seriously and you're yeah. lumped into his camp of crazy. Now Tucker doesn't get into the camp of crazy. He's no, getting he plays into the, the camp dialectic, of, that's for he's, sure. He's in the camp of, you know, hard right MAGA or whatever it is. And and my my argument is that all of these things you watch, you're gonna find some true things being reported on ABC and CNN too. Right. So you got to just realize Fox, Newsmax, any of these conservative outlets, so-called conservative They're outlets. They're selling ads. That's their number one thing. That's what they care about. S- right. It doesn't make them safe from untruth. No, they, they, the, and the bigger issue is that our side uh, and the other side does this with theirs too. We look to these people. It's like we're mesmerized. It's almost celebrity, uh, as though as though getting any story on Tucker Carlson is some sort of win. It's not. It's nothing. It's ratings for him. All right. Let me get on to D- Big D and A Z uh, because he wrote in about this too. And in fact, he was first. So we really should be doing him first. Uh, but but uh, we'll, we'll, I think he'll be okay uh, going second, finishing strong. Uh, he was wanted some attention brought to Tucker Carlson. So again, for a different issue, and again, that's uh, people are so uh, wrapped up in Tucker Carlson. Uh, he was he's getting a lot of flack for apparently his personal texts that were released in the uh, uh, the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News, and in these texts, Tucker Carlson is slamming uh, Donald Trump. And so here's a this is just a, a CNN. Uh, Quick CNN hit that 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 sets up the story, and and then the CNN hit does something a little bit dishonest. Listen to this. According to court documents, host Tucker Carlson texted a producer on January fourth, twenty twenty one, just two days before the Capitol attack. We are very very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. The conversation continues, referring to Trump. Carlson says, "I hate him passionately. I can't handle much more of this." The private communications from Carlson are a sharp contrast to his public support for the former president as seen on his program that night. Okay, so let's just let's make sure everybody's following along. In the text, he said how much he hates Trump. So if it's the opposite of what he's doing on air, on air, what is he saying? He must be saying he loves Trump, correct? Mm-hmm. The president, as you may have heard, believes the election was stolen from him. Georgia's Secretary of State, whose job it is to oversee elections, disagrees. You can listen to the call yourself. It's online, and you can make up your own mind about who's right on that question. And by the way, if you have time, you ought to do that. Wow, that was so hyper-biased. That was just the <laughs> polar opposite of saying he hated him. No, it wasn't. It was him going on air and reporting the story in what, frankly, if you listen to it, is a pretty neutral way. This is what the president says. It's online. You should go listen to it for yourself. I would give Tucker some slack on those texts too, because I'm pretty sure I've said I hated Trump a couple times. Uh, I mean, there's been a couple times that he's made me nuts. Well, this is what both this is what he and Bo Snerdly talk about. Bo Snerdly, the former producer of the Rush Limbaugh podcast, who now has his own program. Uh, here he is talking with Tucker. Tucker, listen. Um, I've had a number of people saying they read all these things. And by the way, this is the clip that came from Big D and AZ once again. I could not have uh, found this on my own. Thank you to our producers for bringing us content. This is your show. Tucker, listen. 
Um, I've had a number of people saying they read all these things in the paper. You hate Trump, blah, blah, blah. But they say, does Tucker like Trump's policies, any policies of his? What's the deal with you and Donald Trump? <laughs> Let's see. I, I spent four years defending. By the way, that was the strangest laughing moment in all, sounded in like all a, of podcasting history. <laughs> that sounded like the laugh of like an heir of the Swanson TV dinner company <laughs> <laughs> and both nerdly i spent four years defending his policies and i um, i'm going to defend them again tonight uh and actually and i'm pretty straightforward i'm um i love trump like as a person i think trump is funny and insightful and and i said this to trump when he called me you know all wounded about those texts um that was a moment in time so okay i just want to stop right there he does that's sort of two backhanded things right there he says i love him as a person well okay you must be making that distinction because there must be ways you don't love him as maybe as a politician uh, as a media entity i don't know what but it, but he makes the delineation and then he says when he called me all wounded that's that's like another smack at Trump. So in this, he's yeah. In my mind, he even in this, he's being a little hostile to Trump. Yeah. Where I was absolutely infuriated, and I think this is in the and those were all grabbed completely illegitimately, in my opinion. Um, in this court case, which I guess I'm not allowed to talk about, but I'm enraged that my private texts were pulled. But um, those those particular texts were pulled at exa- at the moment where I was texting with one of my producers because some idiot on the Trump campaign um, had sent us the name of these dead voters who had voted. And we went and I repeated them on air. And it turns out some of them were alive. Um, oh. So I was just I, I felt humiliated. Yeah. Like what? And I yeah. thought then and I think now that that election was not on the level. It was not a free and fair election. I, I thought that then I think it now. Um, and so I was trying to I wanted, you know, evidence. I mean, there's no way the guy got 81. He got more votes than Barack Obama. Really? You know, who whatever you think of Obama, I never liked Obama, but he's a really talented, a very talented politician. And Joe Biden is senile and hidden in his basement. Tell me how he got 81 million votes. So I've always thought that was not on the level. And so I said to the Trump people, you know, I, you're saying the election was rigged. Send me some examples of it and I'll put it on the air. And one of them was these dead voters. Well, it turned out some of them were still alive. And I was so mad by the incompetence of that campaign, which was completely incompetent. I mean, completely, you know, I'm like the one guy who's open-minded about the election being unfair. And, and that's what they send me. Anyway, whatever. I was mad. That was a moment in time. And um, I will say this, my comments on TV, I think my texts reflect who I am. I'm, I'm vulgar in public, in private rather, and I <laughs> use like bad language and stuff. I've worked in a newsroom my whole life, and my wife's always trying to improve me, which is fair. But my views are pretty transparent. I always say what I think. I can't keep track of too many lies. You know what I mean? So anyway, I that's, know exactly that's what you mean. Great. And and people yeah. forget this, that we say things, we're human beings, and we can say things in a peak of anger, and at exactly. that very moment, we're saying things in a peak of anger, but it does not represent the whole body of our thoughts. Well, that's exactly right, and I was, 
I was actually even thinking about it. <laughs> Makes me mad now. I, I reached out to, them, to this one Trump aide who's I'm not going to name. He's a nice guy, but he's totally incompetent. And I said, I agree with you. There was something really wrong with this election. Send me evidence. And then to, to have the voters call in and be like, no, I'm still alive. <laughs> it was like, I'm so embarrassed and mad. Right. But I can't stand getting the facts wrong. That's just there's no excuse for that. And we got it wrong. And by the way, I guess we should have. Well, I should have. I should have checked to see that those voters were actually dead. And I didn't. And I took this staffer's word for it. And I, now that I'm saying it out loud, I mean, that's my fault. But at the time, I was blaming the Trump campaign. And I was I was just livid. <laughs> so that's it. That is quite a laugh. I cannot stand that laugh. I've, it's maddening. And sometimes it's, it's, it's like a substitute for... Where he even says, I'm, I'm really angry as I'm thinking about it now. And then he laughs. I think you should clip that laugh. I we agree. should use it. Yes. We should. <laughs> well, I'm going to clip that laugh. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Um, so I, I think that his, his I, I mean, I think his, if, if, if that's the true real reason, yeah, I think that's a good explanation for it. Um, it sounds sincere. And and I have to say, I don't doubt it for one second, because as we were talking about red meat a few weeks ago, and all of the red meat that comes along, you know, these shiny objects of the fraud, you know, and all of these like crazy salacious schemes that came out and what we were so convinced and so sure of the fraud, which we believe there was plenty of it. The election was stolen. There was was so much disinformation coming out, so much disinformation coming out simultaneously for the purpose of discrediting legitimate instances of fraud. Right. Do you think that happened to him? Do you think that's what happened to Tucker that, that the, the Trump aide gave him faulty info so that it would embarrass him? I don't think the Trump aide did it on purpose. I think the Trump aide had bad info and passed it on. Right. Somebody like slipped it into watch, the stream. Right. Just like people who watch 2000 Mules and then go, you know, talk about 2000 Mules as being like this end all be all of how the fraud occurred. And so much of that movie has been proven inaccurate yeah, but, and wrong. But, 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 and Tucker, this is, this was, had to have been tough for Tucker to admit because, you know, Tucker's not like us, two guys trying to put on this whole show all by themselves. He's got a whole team. He's got producers. They really dropped the ball, uh, not vetting this themselves. Well, and, and, it, and it exposes that Tucker Carlson, he's not the only one. Other, other shows do this too, where they have such a close relationship with the administration, with political leaders, with their teams, that they don't even think to vet the information they're given from them. And I'm sorry, even if you love Donald Trump and even if you love Tucker Carlson, that is a terrible 
uh, a way to deliver any kind of information that he's just going to have this relationship with them that's so close that he's not going to vet the information they bring him. There, he's supposed to be skeptical of the things that he's being told, and he clearly is not. And like I said, he's not the only one. But this is why you should look at even Tucker Carlson with a grain of salt if you're interested in the truth. Yeah, I agree. So let's let's close out. Let's close out with some uh, woke madness. Woke madness. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Truth Bay Podcast brings you all of the woke madness news that you need to hear. Let me get rid of that. Oh, I forgot to do the. the I was going to. Okay, there we go. They don't have to happen at the same time. People get the idea. Woke Madness, this time in Notre Dame. Uh, I saw a story that that really surprised me. And then I started digging Jeremy and I started down the rabbit hole. And and then I stopped myself from going too far down the rabbit hole because I had already been down the rabbit hole of Bill Ayers and Brandon Johnson. And that was enough rabbit hole for one episode. I just peered into the rabbit hole for this one. Uh, This was a story from the Daily Mail. Bishop slams Catholic University for hosting lecture by an abortion doula who is a trans man. Okay, let's just decompress. Let's let's deconstruct that one for a moment. An abortion doula. Okay. I had to look up. I went just to make sure. I went and looked up at Merriam-Webster's dictionary.com. A doula is a person trained to provide advice, information, emotional support, and physical comfort to a mother before, during, and just after childbirth. I do not know how you mix the word doula and abortion together, uh, but a, I can only assume they believe that you're, that delivering your uh, your dead baby is is the same as delivering your live baby i, I guess i could it's see it actually, if, you, if you have if you have a stillbirth like, let's suppose you didn't abort your baby but it was stillborn yeah i could i could almost understand like needing yeah but that would be a doula that wouldn't be an abortion doula an abortion no. doula is a fancy way for saying murder accomplice it is i'm going to hold your hand while you tear your baby limb from limb yeah it's uh it, yeah, so uh, this bishop was upset. Uh, bishop Kevin Rhodes, this is from the from the report. Uh, bishop Kevin Rhodes hit out at the University of Notre Dame for hosting a lecture by an abortion doula and described it as activist propaganda. Now, meanwhile, they put quotes around abortion doula, but Daily Mail is constantly using other people's like, bizarre pronouns, that, uh, referring to singular people as they and their, and they have no quotes. Uh, when they do that, so the Daily Mail's got some issue with its with its style book. Uh, they they need to break out the quotes more often. I I think. Um, Ash Williams held the discussion on trans abortion care at the University of Notre Dame on Monday as part of the Gender Studies Department's Reproductive Justice Events Series. Okay, well, Notre Dame, it's a Catholic university. What in the world is going on here? Right? I mean, isn't that surprising that? That a the Catholic university would be hosting this kind of stuff? I don't know. I think that's where you find a lot of it. You find the same stuff at Loyola. You find the same stuff at Marquette. Well, DePaul. I went digging. And you're right. And Jeremy, 
These guys, I mean, Brandon Johnson's got nothing on these guys. These guys are so open about the way that they are using this gender studies theory to foment revolution. I have three clips. This is from from the Notre Dame College of Arts and Letters, which is where the gender study department lives. Uh, This is from from their YouTube channel. Uh, What is the genders studies major? This is from three months ago. The kinds of people who sit in gender studies classrooms are the kinds of people who are going to change the world. And let me let me read that text to you. Uh, Study everything, do anything. And then it says study gender studies, do anything. Gender really influences every aspect of our lives. Gender studies is a way of looking at things. A lot of people think that gender studies is just looking at what does it mean to be male, what does it mean to be female, and what does it mean to be non-binary. Gender studies is a lot more about systems and structures and hierarchies of power. A lot of the way that the world operates is on different binary systems, so we kind of look in the way that people fit into those structures to kind of determine like where injustice lies and how we can overcome that um, by working together and building community. Gender studies is a very intentionally interdisciplinary major. You can kind of take it in any direction that you want to. From studying gender, I have learned how to ask questions. The ability to look outside of what I know or what I think I know. How to unlearn things. How to unlearn things. These people are going to Notre Dame to unlearn. That's that's definitely one thing. I know people who are going into healthcare, education. Some people are entering the corporate world. Some people go on to grad school and continue down academia. We're infesting every field. We are everywhere. Some people go into the nonprofit sector, social work. Pretty much anything you want to do, a gender studies degree can help you get there. Because it means nothing. And it's just a way for us to inject critical theory into every aspect of life. Here's from the same YouTube channel. This is uh, called Walk the Walk Week with Barbara Green, Director of Gender Studies and and English. (laughs) She's Director of Gender Studies and English, because those those crossover, obviously. Uh, This was posted one month ago. The Gender Studies program serves the university's mission to advance racial justice primarily through our programming and teaching. Our classes, especially our Gender Studies core courses, integrate learning with social justice and teach students to think critically about gender and sexuality in relation to complex issues of power and difference. Our students learn how to combine rigorous research with praxis and work for change. Did she start off by saying that their gender studies was to was it to advance racial justice? The gender studies program serves the university's mission to advance racial justice. Yep. <laughs> it's all an it's it's all a cover. It's all a cover for social justice. It doesn't matter. It's all matter. a cover for Marxism. It, that's what, I'm sorry. That's the, yes. I I accidentally used their language. You're correct. Uh, when I said social justice, I meant Marxism. You're right. Yeah, don't the, do that again. I, I'm trying not to. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the the uh, I'm not. I, 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 this is what this is what all of these gender studies, uh, uh, all of the different humanities. This is what they've become. They're all. 
what, what's the, 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 they've basically been hollowed out and Marxists are now using them as, uh, as skin suits uh, to, to fool people. The, the young people must be drawn to this. Oh, I'm going to make a difference. Uh, and I should say it like the one woman does. Oh, I'm going to make a difference. Her voice is so gravelly. Let's I mean, yeah. like, get her a lozenge. Overcome that um, by working together and building community. Building community. Yeah, she needs a Ricola. Oh, wow. It's dangerous what is happening here at Notre Dame. This is the last clip. And just to show you, and this is what you were saying, how long this has been going on. The first two clips just came out, you know, like I said, three months ago and one month ago. This is from eight years ago. Notre Dame College of Arts and Letters YouTube channel, student profile, Natalie Perez. My name is Natalie Perez and I'm from Providence, Rhode Island. I had no clue that I was going to be a gender studies major. At the end of my freshman year, I decided to take intro to gender studies, just kind of as an elective, but I was immediately hooked. The gender constructs that our society is built are limiting. We live in a culture that's very permissive about these stereotypes, about these cultural norms, and I don't think it's okay to sit back and accept things for the way they are. Gender studies affects every part of life, um, politics, our social lives, the kind of cultures that we're building. I'm taking a class called Schooling Masculinities. It's taught by Kevin Burke. And this class focuses on how masculinity is developed within the schooling system specifically. So what do teachers say to elementary school kids that teach them the differences between the genders? Kevin really challenges us to think about the little things that slipped past us when we were kids. Little things like what kinds of things were you expected to do at recess? What kind of clothes were you expected to wear? It's interesting now to look back on it with a critical eye, especially through a gender studies lens, and see what kind of formation that was really making happen. I remember the swings because the swings would swing back and forth in a straight line. It was propagandizing me to be straight. Don't be gay. Don't be straight. Go in a straight line. And then I remember that I would get on the on the on the on the merry-go-round thing. That, you know, you get on and it would spin in a circle, and that wasn't straight at all. And that was like propagandizing to me to be gay. And oh my gosh! All the signals I was getting on the playground. All I was getting on the playground. I don't know about you. Was whether or not I was going to be picked for the team. I mean, that was that was it. It was was I going to be playing kickball that day, or was I going to be watching other kids play kickball that day? Sometimes people made fun of my shoes. <laughs> Obviously, to reinforce a gender norm. These people yeah. are nuts. So I was I'm wearing pink shoes. On masculinity, specifically in college males. I'm trying to look at what happens when a Wait, listen, listen, listen to that again. Hang on. Critical eye, especially through a gender studies lens, and see what kind of formation that was really making happen. I'm writing a thesis on masculinity, specifically in college males. She's writing her thesis on masculinity. Uh, me, oh. me, men may not have an opinion on abortion, but she is going to write an entire thesis on masculinity. Sounds like she could be uh, Brandon Johnson's vice presidential running mate. Oh, uh, yeah. Well... It sounds like she's got daddy issues, is what it sounds like. I'm trying to look at what happens when a big group of guys gets together, how that affects how they interact with each other, how they interfa interact with women, um, and how that affects their developing masculinity. I'm really glad I became a gender studies major. Notre Dame. Uh, yeah. 
Send your kids to Notre Dame, everybody. I know it's that it's that season. It's college season. It's a good idea. And if they graduate from Chicago public schools, deserving but have never receiving of an F from Brandon Johnson, they could get a full ride at Notre Dame. Yeah, and only be $40,000 in debt. That's the full ride at Notre Dame. <laughs> Wow, what a show. Very radical all the way through, Jeremy. Yeah, everybody enjoy your weekend after that. Very big thanks to, first of all, to all of our listeners, even our non-active listeners, but also to our active listeners, to our producers, Big D and AZ, Cruise Director Barb, Dan in Wisconsin. Is Dan in Wisconsin? Where is Dan? Dan King from Janesville, Wisconsin. There you go. Thank you, Dan King in Janesville, Wisconsin. Everybody who wrote in, it makes the show better, and it is your show. I really hope that they loved the Tucker Carlson segment. That was the ultimate uh, ode to our producers. You and I would not have covered that on our own, but this is what our producers wanted. So I think we should just do a podcast about Tucker. If that's what our producers want, let's do it. We are here for our producers. We're not doing that before the pay button is set up. (laughs) (laughs) Then we will be earning the money. (laughs) Well, thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend and uh, avoid the clickbait. Only stay tuned in to the truth bait. Although that destroys my my sign-off line, doesn't it? I'm saying avoid the truth, avoid the clickbait, but then go uh, and now back into the sea of clickbait with you all it's not going to work no you really botched that one alright and now back into the sea of clickbait with you all we'll see you Tuesdays and Fridays <gasps> that's right I forgot oh my uh. hold on a second I'm going to I can't do it There we go. (laughs) Uh, Just in the nick of time. (laughs) That was just in the nick of time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, make sure to tune in every single Tuesday and Friday without fail. To the best of our ability. And now back into the sea of clickbait with you all. Ha 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 ha!